0: Our scripture reading today will be taken from the third chapter of Romans, if you'd open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Now Paul is developing in this book the fact that all people are sinners and guilty and they need a righteousness of God they don't have. And the only way to get this righteousness is faith alone in Christ alone. That's the development of the argument that he's using. Now he spent a lot of time in synagogues. In fact, if you go through Acts 17, it was his habit. When he would go into a city on the Sabbath day, he'd go into synagogues and he would debate with the religious leaders and present to them this grace gospel. And out of those debates that he had with those leaders, they came up with a bunch of arguments that they would throw at him concerning the grace gospel he's presenting. And so what he does as we go through this text this morning is He basically asks a series of questions that are responses to things that he's heard as he's been in these synagogues dealing with these Jews to establish that they're guilty. So verse 1 says, then what advantage has the Jew? And obviously he heard that. He heard that when he was in a synagogue They're arguing, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Because remember he told them circumcision means nothing, and it's now faith in Jesus Christ that saves, and that means anything. Great in every respect, verse 2, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. See, you'd hear these kind of arguments that we'll go through. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come, their condemnation is just. Now I want to just point out something before we pray. That is, if you are actually presenting the grace gospel accurately, And you actually have a handle on the grace gospel. This is the kind of argument stuff you're going to hear. In other words, you're likely to hear, well, if our works have nothing to do with us being saved, and if in fact we're saved only by faith in the Lord, and that our sin proves our guilt and our need for a Savior, then why not just go out and sin up a storm? That's the kind of thing you're going to hear, which is exactly what Paul was hearing. But the fact of the matter is, The grace of God does have nothing to do with works, and that would be a good indication if you hear those arguments, you've got a handle on the grace of God. No works, no law, it is pure grace found totally and completely in Jesus Christ. May God add his blessing to the reading of the scriptures and the exposition of it later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Father, what a great and glorious God you truly are. That beautiful moon this morning majestically displayed your power and your faithfulness and your sovereignty, your stability, your presence. Thank you so much for your greatness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for life that you've given to us. Thank you for mercies and blessings that we've experienced, Lord. Thank you for salvation. And I pray that each and every one of us would reflect more and more of your precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would continue to develop our lives, grant us the grace to see the tremendous value of serving thee, grant us the grace to see the value of giving more of ourselves to thee. May we have wisdom to think about you and honor you in all areas of our life, Lord, that there would be no closet areas that you're not Lord over. I pray that you would be working in our time and our talents and our gifts and our money and our service. And we thank you for faithful people, faithful people who pray and who serve in so many ways in your church. We would pray that you would take special note of them and grant them thy special blessings. Grant us wisdom to be individuals and grant us the wisdom to be a church that always pleases thee. And I pray that you would grant us thy strength and grant us thy growth. Lord, we thank you for answers to prayer we've seen. We've seen some major answer to prayers in surgeries with Hank and Becky and Dennis and Mary. We thank you for just raising them up. We want to pray for the sick of our church. We pray that you would grant them healing. Lord, I think of that massive list that we pray about on Wednesday night, people that are going through difficult things physically. Lord, they need your healing touch It's true we go to the doctors and we follow their advice, but they also need thy intervention. We pray that for each and every one of them. We pray for those who've lost loved ones. We pray you grant comfort, Lord, in that situation, Lord. We pray for those that are always making excuses as to why they can't accomplish this or why they can't be faithful. I pray you grant them conviction that they would realize time is ticking away. It's time to get serious about our relationship with God. And then we would pray for the lost. We pray for people that perhaps don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. They rely on themselves. They rely upon their works and their religion and all of the stuff that goes with that. We pray that you would open up their eyes. May they realize they need a righteousness that's only found in Jesus Christ. Lord, we're nearing an election. We would ask for your intervention in that. We pray the election will be fair with no clandestine manipulation. We pray that those elected will seek to do thy will. We pray that you would put those in office who will help thy people. We ask for those in office that are there now, turn their minds to making righteous decisions so that you may continue to bless us. And Lord, we would certainly pray as we do that you would come get us soon. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. If you've ever been in a court of law and heard an attorney at work, you realize they're skilled at asking questions they're good at getting someone on the stand and firing a series of questions at the one that's on the stand. But there have been some moments in real court when the attorney was not so skilled and asked questions that don't generate the kind of response they intended. For example, this was taken from an actual transcript of a real court interchange between a lawyer and doctor. The attorney, doctor. Before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? Witness, no. Attorney, did you check for blood pressure? Witness, no. Attorney, so then it is possible that the person was alive when you began the autopsy? Witness, no. Attorney, how can you be so sure, doctor? Witness, because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. (laughs) Attorney, I see, but could the patient have still been alive nevertheless? Witness, yes, it is possible he could have been alive as a practicing law. <laughs> I like that. This is true, by the way. This is true stuff I've, I'm, I'm giving you. Okay, here's another interchange taken between a lawyer and his client on the stand. Attorney, she had three children, right? Witness, yes. Attorney, how many were boys? Witness, none. Attorney, were there any girls? Witness, your honor, I think I need a different attorney. Can I get a new one? (laughs) Oh, boy. Sometimes in a courtroom, the questions may seem to lack some sense, but not in the word of God. Questions are very important, and the answers to those questions are critical, and they lead to true doctrine concerning the gospel of God and to salvation. Now, the apostle Paul was like a defense attorney. But he's like a defense attorney for God's grace gospel. And his goal is to, in this text, show that all are legally guilty before God and justly condemned. He spent a lot of time in Jewish synagogues, as we mentioned. He spent a lot of time debating with Jews. He'd heard all these arguments and stuff. I mean, as we pointed out in Acts 17, we didn't go there. But when he went into Thessalonica, we learned it was his habit. It was his habit to go into synagogues and fire this grace gospel and go up against those religious leaders, and he had heard every possible argument. So the questions that he actually presents in this section of scripture here are questions that he himself has heard. I mean, he's heard these things when he's been presenting the gospel of God, and he asked nine questions as a theological attorney because he knows how these people think. He knows exactly what they're going to say. He knows how they think. He says, what advantage has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? What about those who didn't believe? Does the unbelief of the Jews end up nullifying the faithfulness of God? Now, the reason why he has to tackle these kinds of things is because almost everyone in the world thinks we're good. Religion's good. And because we're religious, we're good. And God is good. So it's all going to end happily ever after. And people will use almost any argument they can to justify themselves and justify their sin. I mean, the last thing most people are willing to say is, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. So we ask those questions. The fifth question, what about our unrighteousness? Demonstrating God's righteousness. Is God unrighteous who inflicts wrath? And he makes these statements, may it never be. That's when he gets revved up, as it were, in his presentation when he's writing this. He gets so revved up there are times he just says, may it never be, your arguments are foolish. How will God judge the world? Why would I still be considered if I'm lying to help establish the truth? And why not say as some claim, let's do evil that we may have good come out of it? You know, it's much easier for religious people to question things and debate things and rationalize things than to deal with their own sin. It's just a whole lot easier. It's throwing barbs out there and these barriers up there, and that's what these people were doing. So what Paul does is he basically beats them to the punch here, and what he says is God is completely just in his condemnation of the Jew, the religious person, and the non-religious person because all are sinners. Now, people don't want that mess. don't like it. In fact, some people believe, look, I've lived a pretty good life. God's not going to condemn me. Other people think I'm a good, good religious person. I mean, I'm good in my religion. God's not going to condemn me. I may not be perfect, but I'm better than a lot of people. So I don't need to worry about the condemnation of God. I mean, God is a loving God, a gracious God. He's not going to condemn me. Paul says, you need to understand something. Apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ being given to you and imputed to you, you're all condemned and justly so. So he asks a series of questions and he answers things. This is a tricky passage of scripture, but we can pretty much zero in on what he's trying to communicate to us as we go down through it. There are three critical theological points that he's trying to make. And the first one is, God is just In condemning the Jews because they had the advantage of having God's oracles. Verse 1 Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. These Jews should have been the first group to recognize Jesus Christ. They should have been first in line to say, here's our Messiah, here's our Savior. I mean, they should have been the first group of people that would have said, we're sinners, we know that. Why do you think we take those blood sacrifices to the tabernacle or the temple and offer them? Why are we doing that? We know we're all sinners. And they should have also realized we need salvation, but they didn't realize this. At the present time, the Jews do not have any soteriological advantage over the Gentile. Any Gentile who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, just as any Jew who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians, whether Jews or Gentiles, we form a body of Jesus Christ when we do believe in this particular time period. Well, Jews don't like that concept. They don't like that. They don't want to be merged together with Gentiles. They put a lot of faith in their religion. They put a lot of faith in their pedigree. They put a lot of faith in their rituals and in their circumcision. We certainly have seen that. And if it's true that any who believe are saved, then their thinking is, there's no advantage to being a Jew. There's really no advantage. Paul says, hey, just you boys, wait a minute. First of all, and when you read that, first of all, the idea here is, this is of significance. Significance. He's not going to give a chronological list, first, second, third, and go through a numerical chronology here, but he's basically using the first of all statement to indicate something of profound importance. You need to understand this first. You people had the oracles of God. You people actually had the oracles of God. In other words, you had the scriptures given to you. And some have debated, are we talking here about the great advantage of having the entire Old Testament? Are we talking here about having the messianic promises that predicted the Messiah, Savior, would come? And the fact of the matter is both are true. In all reality, both are true. The Jews had the great privilege of being given the words of God, which certainly included words that had to do with the coming Savior and Messiah. And Paul's contextual point here is if it makes no difference whether one is circumcised or if one is a Jew, then what advantage does the Jew have? Paul says, you've had a great advantage in that you've had the written words of God given to you. What a gift. What a gift. No other nation in this universe, in history, has ever had God literally show up in person to give his word and write it with his own finger. No other nation has had that happen. Just that reality there should be enough to convince Israel that we need to be in a relationship with God based on His terms, not ours. And many Jews believed, and they still believe, that they're going to heaven based on the fact they're Jewish, based on the fact that they've been circumcised. Well, Paul says, You actually have the Word of God. You've been given the oracles of God, and those oracles show that all people are guilty and all people stand condemned in the sight of God. You should know that. You're the people that got the word. These Jews knew they had not measured up to the holiness of God. They knew they hadn't kept all the law of God. They could go through those oracles of God in written form and see that we have it measured up. I mean, they should have been the first people to realize, you know, we need the grace of God to save us because we have the written word of God that condemns us. Unless they think that the word of God doesn't teach that, we could say, well, what about what Job wrote in Job chapter 9? But how can a man be right before God? Though I'm righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I'm guiltless, he will declare me guilty. What about what David wrote in Psalm 53? God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. What about what Isaiah wrote? In Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. What about what Jeremiah wrote? The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Jews had those scriptures. The Jews had gone through those scriptures, and frankly, we have them too. We have tremendous English translations, and I hope you are beginning to grasp this, because I want us to feel the weight of this. Do we realize what we have is a book that has been given to us in our language by God himself? That's what we have in the Word of God. And according to statistics this year, every year, 20 million Bibles are sold in the United States. Every home has an average of 4.3 Bibles in it, and 85% of all American homes have a Bible. Those are incredible numbers. Yet, when you compare that to cell phones, (laughs) not even close. Two hundred eighty. 0.5 million cell phones in the United States in the last statistics, 97% of all Americans have one. Truth is, we have great access to the Word of God in this country, but most people are more concerned with their cell phones than they are the Word of God. And in homes where the Bible is respected somewhat, there's really very little true understanding of what's in it. Because when you try to determine whether someone has actually gone through the paragraphs and the clauses to determine what's in it, it's far and few between of those who actually have. And we know that's true because the vast majority of religious people trust in things like water baptism. And the vast majority of religious people trust in things like their catechism and their works and their religious rituals. When they have access to God's word that teaches us all, you can't be right with God by any of that stuff. Plus, there are churches all over this country where the word of God is being carefully and faithfully taught. They're getting farther and fewer between, but there are churches across this nation where people can go and they can hear the accurate word of God that is taught. And we live here in a country where we have great advantage over people who don't have this. And many people can see that they are sinners and they can see that they need the grace of God and they know something about Jesus Christ dying on a cross. But many choose to rely on their church membership or their religious works or their religious traditions as a means of saving them. Many people think they're going to heaven because... We live in the United States, a Christian nation. So we're going. We got our ticket. Because we live in this country with Bibles, and we're a Christian nation. We're going to heaven. But then you take a look at the downloads, 96 in Washington, D.C., impressive, 30 in Israel. But then look at Russia, 327. More people listening in Russia. Look at Czechoslovakia, 314. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if when we get to heaven, we find there are more people in heaven from Russia and Czechoslovakia and other countries than even the United States of America. So when people finally get before God, who've had the word of God, the written word of God, his condemnation will be just when he condemns them. And that is Paul's theological point. What's the advantage of being a Jew? Yeah, the scriptures. The scriptures that told you how to be right with God, but you didn't want it. Now his second point is, God is just in his condemnation of those who don't believe because he's faithful to himself and his word. Notice verse three, what then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true true. Though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. You know, when it comes to God, most people ask the wrong question. Usually, people will ask this question, how could a just God send people to hell? That's the wrong question. The right question is, how could a just God permit anybody to go to heaven? There's the right question. And Paul's question in verse 3 is this. If God gave his oracles and his word to the Jews, and they don't believe, then doesn't that mean that God's program and his faithfulness to his word is nullified? I mean, after all, think of what he's promised Israel. He promised to give Israel a land. He promised to give Israel a righteous king. He promised there would be a day when she will be the esteemed nation of God by every other nation in the world, and she would have a kingdom established that will be honored all over the world. So if Israel isn't saved, doesn't that make God out to be a liar? I mean, if all Jews rejected Jesus Christ, and as a nation they've rejected Jesus Christ, doesn't that make out God to be a liar? Because he said he was going to bless Israel and do all that stuff for Israel. Paul's answer before he addresses it in verse 4 is, May it never be. Don't you ever allege that about God. Then he makes four direct statements God is a God who will be found to be true. Verse 4 God will be found true. God is always true. He cannot lie. Everything he says is true. And no matter what God ends up saying about Israel, no matter what God ends up saying about me, or no matter what God ends up saying about you, it will be true. When it comes time for judgment, it will be true. If we deserve rewards, it will be true in giving rewards. If we've lost rewards, it will be true in losing rewards. Judgment will be true. God is a God who cannot ever lie. Understand that about God. Secondly, every man's a liar. Every man's a liar in the sense that every man's a sinner. I don't care what he says. Verse 4 says, though every man be found a liar. Look, don't flatter yourself, especially in the sight of God. Don't try to do that because you're not going to get away with it. Neither am I. Every human has stretched the truth and every human has lied about himself and to himself. And this is especially true when it comes to a person's relationship with God. People want you to think they're right with God even if they aren't. They want you to think they are. They're playing this religious game of charades in which they want you to believe they're right with God even if they're not. And Paul said, I'll tell you what, every man's a liar. And I love something Charles Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon said, if God says one thing, And every man on this earth says another thing. Men are liars, not God. And you better understand that about those oracles and written word of God. Because the written word of God is just as true as the character of God. If God says there are two genders, male and female, which he established already earlier in the book, we went through that, If every person on the planet says, you can't know that for sure, they're the liar, not God. If God says, I created the heavens and the earth, and men come up with theories about some massive explosion that occurred eons ago, billions of years ago, they're the liar, not God. If God says, I'm the one who made man in our image. And you have somebody in a classroom saying, it came from a tadpole over millions of years that evolved up a scale of evolution to becoming a monkey and then into a man. They're the liars, not God. If it comes to an issue of morality. And you see the word of God and what it says on the subject. And you have a whole bunch of people who are saying something just the opposite of what the Bible says. They're the liar, not God. And when it comes to the matter of salvation and eternity, and God says you need a righteousness you don't have to come live with me. It's a righteousness you can't earn. You can't work for it. It's a righteousness I have to give you. And you have religions telling you, oh no, follow our traditions, follow our rules, follow our codes, follow our denomination, they're the liar, not good. Paul says, every man is a liar. And if a person tries to tell you they've not sinned, you can know flat out they're lying to you. Which brings us to his third statement, the word of God will justify the character of God. Verse 4 says, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words. God's word will always justify God's character being a God of truth. The word of God will be proven to be true on every single subject. I guarantee you this, as we are here today, physically, I guarantee you this, one day Israel is going to be in that land. Why? Because that's what God said he's going to do. I am convinced that one day Israel will have every inch of that land that runs from the Nile River to the Euphrates up north into southern Turkey, back down the Mediterranean coast, she'll have every inch of it. That's the land that he promised to give her. She's never had the dimensions of that land ever in her history. But I guarantee you there will come a day when she will have it. We're seeing that set up in Revelation when he's going to give it to her. Why? Because God's word will always justify the character of God. If it comes down to you standing on the word of God or what people are telling you, stand on the word of God. And the fourth statement is, God will prevail at the judgment of every man. Notice verse 4, and prevail when you are judged. Now here's something every human had better grasp. The judgment of God is going to end up winning. I don't care who the person is, me or you. Doesn't matter how important or impressive the person thinks he or she is, the judgment of God's going to end up winning. No person is going to get into God's court and prevail against God. I mean, you have some of these arrogant people that say, boy, when I get before God, I'm going to tell him a thing or two and call up my life and everything. That mouth's going to be shut. That's what Paul will say later in this very book. The mouth will be shut. Because they aren't going to end up winning. God's going to end up winning. He's the one who's going to prevail at judgment. And God in his own faithfulness to himself and his word can legitimately condemn everyone. God would be faithful and just if he wrote condemnation on the whole world. But in pure grace, he's offered salvation to the whole world. He put his son on the cross. And he said, any who will believe in him will be given a righteousness they don't have. I will impute it judicially to them. They don't have it. They can't earn it. Which brings us to his third point. God is just in condemnation of those who dare suggest our unrighteousness establishes his righteousness. This just is mind-boggling to me. The arguments he had obviously heard were people who were trying to justify their own sin and trying to somehow convince paul that if his theology about pure grace was right then in all reality their sin is okay because they're just showing that it's by grace you're saved and not of works i mean that's their reasoning in this that's how much they love their sin and there are five points that paul makes here we cannot argue the fact that our unrighteousness proves god's righteousness Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. Well, some are going to argue if our unrighteousness proves that God is righteous, then in all reality, we're helping establish the character of God by us doing unrighteous things. That's the logic that Paul was running into here. People trying to justify what they did. Let's see if I can put this in a practical illustration. Suppose someone says to you, don't hit yourself in the head with a rock. Because if you hit yourself in the head with a rock, there will be serious consequences. So, you pick up a rock and you slug yourself in the head and then you say, well, I just helped you out because I proved you were right. How foolish is that? How foolish is that? People gamble with eternity on arguments like that. God says, don't rely upon your works, don't rely upon your religion, rely upon my son Jesus Christ to save you, or you're going to end up burning in hell. And some people argue, well, if I have to not rely upon my works or my religion, then I'm actually proving that you're right. Well, yeah, he is right, you're going to end up in hell. The second point is, we cannot conclude that God would be unrighteous in inflicting wrath. Verse 5, the God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. See, Paul is bringing out the fact, this is the stuff I've heard from humans. And God is righteous. Nothing he could ever do could be unrighteous, including inflicting wrath on people. But perhaps one of the best illustrations of this argument that would make us understand the argument, I read from a commentator who gave a theoretical illustration of Judas said, Judas could have said, well now, I betrayed Jesus Christ, but God used that for good in his whole sovereign plan. If I had not betrayed Jesus Christ, then Jesus would not have died on the cross. So in all reality, Judas could say, I was fulfilling biblical prophecy. So God can't really pour out his wrath on me because I was fulfilling the word of God. Well, God would say to that, it's true. I did use your evil for my sovereign purposes, and I did use your evil for my sovereign grace package. However, it was still your evil. You weren't motivated to do that in your heart to fulfill the will of God. You weren't motivated in your heart to do that to fulfill the plan of God. You were motivated by evil hatred and greed. And even though I use this for my plan, you're guilty and condemned for what you did. Because I'm not unrighteous in pouring out my wrath on you. You deserve every bit of it. And that is exactly the way it's going to work for everyone who rejects Christ. I don't care what their argumentation. Everyone who rejects Christ will discover God will be perfectly just and righteous in pouring out his wrath. The third point is, God's judgment is based on his righteousness and the world's unrighteousness. Verse 6 says, may it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? Oh boy. There's no other way God can judge this world than in his righteousness. And make no mistake about what is stated here. God is going to judge this world, and this world deserves him doing it. The fact of the matter is, the judgment that God will level against any sinner will be based on that sinner's unrighteousness. If you really believe that you can get before God and convince God to let you into heaven apart from the righteousness of his son, you're fighting a losing battle. He'll call up the totality of your life. I guarantee you, you'll lose. You've got more sins stored up than you even know. You probably can't even remember all the sins you've committed against the Lord. He does. He has the record of it. He will be perfectly just when he pours out his wrath on anything that's unrighteous. And then, fourthly, God's condemnation of sinners will be true. He says, but if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged a sinner? The argument is, if God is shown to be true by my lying, why would I be calculated a sinner for lying about my sin? The answer is because you lied. There. How about that? The condemnation of God is true. You know, we live on a a dirt road. And we really love it when people write something on our car out there. If I catch you doing that, we'll expose you from the pulpit. I'll tell you that right now. But sometimes, because we live on a dirt road, we get the car washed, then we drive down the dirt road, and it gets dirty pretty quick again. And we'll pull in by another car, and that car looks pretty good compared to ours, because we live on a dirt road. So you look at that car next to us, and you go boy, that car looks clean, until you get a spotless car next to that. Then you go, we're both dirty. They didn't write on their window, they wrote on ours. But we're both dirty with our vehicles. And God says, that's the way it is with my righteousness. Oh, you may look pretty good compared to somebody else. I mean, you may shine pretty bright, but when you compare yourself against the righteousness of God, you're going to lose. And God says, my judgment will be just. My judgment will be true against any sinner. Which brings us to his fifth point, God's condemnation of sinners is just, verse 8. And why not say, and this is what they were saying about Paul, look at what verse 8 says, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come, their condemnation is just. Now, they're attacking the grace gospel by saying, well, if what you're telling us is the truth that we're not saved by works, that we're not saved by our attempts to keep the law, and we're not saved by religious rituals like circumcision or obeying man's traditions, if what you're saying is the truth, then why don't we just go continue to do evil so that good can come out of it, so that we can show that God is gracious in declaring us righteous from our sin? And this, ladies and gentlemen, to me is a critical theological point that just blasts lordship salvation right in the face. See, Lordship Salvation wants man to cling to something about his discipleship. Or, I'll follow the Lord, I'll turn from all sin. I mean, they want to throw that in there. You've got to make him Lord of every area of your life, which never made sense to me, because I thought, well, when is he Lord of your life? If you cross this line, is he not Lord? Is he that line? Is he not Lord? I mean, the whole argument, it's against what Paul's saying here. Paul was presenting such a profound grace gospel message that the potential response was, okay, if our works are not involved, then we should just continue to go sin up a storm. That's the argument that he got. And Paul says, any person who tries to dodge the fact that they are sinners and they need the righteousness of God are going to discover this is their problem, not God's problem. And what God has come up with is an amazing system to give, as you'll see in the next chapters, the righteousness of God to a sinner who simply believes in Jesus Christ. So any person who wants to defend their sin by alleging it really helps develop the character of God is reaching the darkest levels of mental depravity. This story so stuck with me that I had to write it down and document it and file it away. On March 12, 1986, I was teaching a freshman course in public speaking. And I required that each student had to give their testimony in three to five minutes. And a girl named Ruth stood up and told how she had been raised in a Christian home. She had been faithful to attend church. She was heavily involved in church activities. She actually won awards for her scripture memorization and her faithful attendance. She was voted as the Christian most likely to make a difference for God. She said one night at a church service, the Holy Spirit convicted her that she was trusting completely in her religious works and not the work of Jesus Christ the Savior. As she stood and told us this story, she said, It was like the Holy Spirit just nudged me and said to me, Ruth, you're trusting in your works. You're not trusting in my work. And she said, That night, she bowed her head and gave her life to Jesus Christ and was saved. Now you think of that. She'd been involved for years in the church. She'd been involved for years in religious work. But she'd never come to terms with the fact, I need Jesus Christ to give me a righteousness I don't have. Don't let that bypass you. The fact of the matter is, we're all sinful. We all need this righteousness. There's only one person from whom we may get it. There's only one way to get it, and that is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the message Paul took to the Jews and Gentiles in the book of Romans. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, right now in this moment you can settle that. And I would if I were you. Just admit the fact that you're a sinner and invite Jesus Christ to come into your life to save you. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. We thank you for your spirit. We would ask that your spirit would do his work in every individual, Lord. Thank you so much for this grace gospel. Thank you for the Apostle Paul who is such a warrior in defending it and proclaiming it. And I pray we would have some of that apostolic backbone rub off on us as we learn more and more about the truth. And I pray that we would be the kind of people who would be able to defend truth and stand for truth just like he did. Thank you for being our God. What a privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.